When we left off last week, we had seen great and wonderful things happening as a result of Jesus' name being lifted up. People were less and less thinking of Jesus and, and, and the name of Jesus as just another magical incantation that they could utter and, and have some, something happen. But they began to see him as different from all their gods they'd worship, see him as somebody different, uh, vastly different from the, uh, the normal practices, from the occultic practices of the time there in Ephesus. And even as an example of, 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 of some of the dramatic, oh, we have a baby baptism, that's right, baby dedication. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I'm, thanks for reminding me back there. Mary, <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to dedicate Michelle. Hi, Annie. Come on. I see all these people in the background going. (laughs) They're waving a camera at me. I go, oh, dumb. (laughs) All right. Okay. Then we'll then we'll get back to Luke. Hi, Annie. Can I hold you? Oh boy. Oh, how old are you? Four. Four? Oh, can you see all the smiling faces? You know these people love you? You know a lot of them don't know you, but they love you. You know they want Jesus to, to do everything in your life. You want that too? All right. A single mama, huh? It's difficult raising a little one all by yourself in this world. And so Mary and Michelle are especially going to need our prayers that the Lord bless them. So join with us as we dedicate little Michelle. <laughs> Lord, Mary brings her daughter before you. And Lord, I know some things that have gone on in this family. And Lord, you're a God of healing and restoration. You're a God of new life. As Mary brings her daughter before you, and dedicates her to you. Lord, she's, she's also dedicating herself to, to raise Michelle up, to be a woman after your own heart. Lord, to live her life as a, a godly example to her daughter. To build in wisdom into this young lady's life. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen Mary and do all that's necessary. Watch over this little girl and protect her. Lord, please put into her heart a desire to be a woman after your own heart to serve you all the days of her life. As a congregation, help us to rally around this family, to support them, to love them, to encourage them, to really exhibit the love of Jesus so that they might feel his love real through us. Lord, we dedicate her to you. We dedicate this family to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Nineteenth chapter of Acts. <laughs> you ever feel dumb, you know, just a, a real faux pas? Too many funny yeah, that's right. Oh gosh. Okay. Paul has been preaching in Ephesus. Now, he tells us in the sixteenth chapter of First Corinthians that he's been there three years. He, he's written to the Corinthians, and his his goal is to get to Rome. He says that in uh, in Corinthians and. 
Also, in, in uh, this latter part of, of uh, verse 21, in the 19th chapter, he says it's, it's his goal to get to, to Rome. But before he goes, he's going to visit some of the other churches. He's going to strengthen them. But he's going to remain on in Ephesus for a little while longer, he says, because a great opportunity has opened up for him there, a wide door for ministry. That wide door is a festival that's going to go on the entire month of April in that particular year. It's a festival worshiping and celebrating the goddess Diana, or Artemis, as Luke describes her. And Paul can't stand leaving that city, leaving that district, until he gets a shot at all these people who are going to come from the whole district of Asia into Ephesus to involve themselves in all the festivities that go on throughout that month. So he's excited. He's going to stay on. He sends some of his helpers, uh, Timothy and uh, a fellow by the name of, um, if I can find his name here, Erastus. He's going to send them up to Macedonia, up to Philippi, and some of the churches up there to minister. But he's going to stick around in, uh, in Ephesus to continue on because there's all this tremendous influx of people who need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, and he's going to preach it to them. Well, as often is the case, when God is moving, when there's revival, when things are happening, when people are coming to Christ, resistance will arise. And we've seen this happen several times already in our journey through the book of Acts with Luke, haven't we? We've seen Paul preach, or we've seen Peter preach, or we've seen Barnabas, and in every situation, resistance has arisen. And we're going to see it once again in the person of a guy by the name of Demetrius and his associates. And he's the, he's the local silversmith. He's the, he's the guy that, that apparently has the monopoly, the control, on all of the, um, the temple idols and the little trinkets and the souvenirs that people will buy who come to Ephesus to worship at the temple of Diana, and then they go back home. And you see, all of Paul's preaching over these three years has caused a whole lot of people in the district of Asia to receive Jesus as their Savior. They're trusting in Jesus now, not Diana. They're worshiping Jesus Christ, not at the temple of Diana. And guess what that does to Demetrius's business? Cuts into it. And so we have a situation set up where Demetrius, because he is threatened by the gospel, his sense of security, his sense of purpose, his whole basis for life is being threatened now by the gospel, is going to stir up trouble. And we're going to see how this happens. Now, there's an application for us. Demetrius is not a, a believer. But you see... None of us are perfect. Even though we're born again, we're Christians, there is still a remnant of Demetrius left in all of us. The Bible teaches us that God's in the process of perfecting us. And he wants us to participate with him in that process. He wants us to, every day, open ourselves up. As we prayed this morning, as I prayed with you, Lord, we're here this morning, we open ourselves up, we, we open up our minds and our hearts, we're willingly here, speak to us, convict us, lead us. And God wants to do this, a new work in our life every single day. He wants to, to more and more remove the old, remove the Demetrius from us. And, and what is Demetrius? But in, in essence, it's a, it's a dependence on, on this world and the things of this world. It's a dependence on our own securing of life, our own trusting in, in the things that we have figured out will give our life happiness. 
totally apart from God, totally apart from a relationship with Him. The Bible says <clears throat> throughout the whole book, from the beginning to the end, that it's in a relationship with God, that we're made for a relationship with Him, that He is the end, that He is the one person that can fulfill our life. He is the one person that can give our life real meaning. He is the one person that can bring real, true peace and love and joy and happiness into our life. And though we may know that intellectually, the distance from here to here sometimes is a long, hard trip to make before that becomes real in our life, before we begin to abandon ourselves to Him in these various areas. You don't become a Christian and all of a sudden, overnight, become perfect. When you become a Christian, you just begin to enter in to a journey to new life. And it's through that journey that God does His work of renewing in each of us. God is removing the remnants of Demetrius in all of us. But when he wants to move, there's resistance. Even though we intellectually know and understand that what God wants is what the best is for us, and, and yes, I ought to do this, and I agree with my mind, but as Paul says, I see another law at work in my members, law of sin waging war. What's the law of sin? I think it would be defined simply as foolishness. Foolishness is, is, is the compilation of those things that we've learned since we were little tiny children. We've just kind of learned how, on our, by our own methods, by looking around, seeing how other people are, how to be happy. What's going to fulfill us? The same things that drive Demetrius to hold on to stir up trouble against the gospel, to see the gospel as a threat, not as something better for his life. The same things that he wrestles with are the same things that you and I wrestle with. They're deep, personal needs. Most of us are acquainted with our physiological needs. Most of us have, have needs for water, food, oxygen, at pretty regular intervals, right? What happens if you don't get oxygen, food, and water at regular intervals? physical breakdown. And just as we have those kinds of physiological needs that, that scream out constantly to be met, that hunger unrelentingly to be met, we also have personal needs. Personal needs. You can lump them into two major categories. A need to feel loved, a need to feel secure, a need to feel adequate or significant, important. Two real basic human needs. And it's those needs that are constantly screaming out to be met. Ever since we're little tiny children, we come into the world, we become aware that we exist. And we begin to reach out, we try to expand our horizons in order to meet these needs. And we come up with, with solutions that are not God's solutions. They're our solutions, they're worldly solutions. Demetrius has learned that in order to be important, in order to be somebody, in order to be secure, he must be in control of his little world and nothing better threaten it. Nothing, you see, when the gospel comes, he sees people turning away from Artemis, turning away from, from all the pagan rituals and turning to Christ. He sees how it directly affects his business. 
If he's to turn away from Christ, what then would he do? Well, he'd become a maker of crosses. <laughs> he'd turn his life over to Christ and he'd learn to trust the Lord. But instead, he holds on to what he has learned through his life will meet his needs, his business, his money. And the cost of giving that up to him is too great because nothing could replace it. But Jesus could, couldn't he? Let's look at this passage and talk more about this. About that time, when many, many, many people were coming to know the Lord as their Savior, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is an, another way of describing, or that was the terminology used in that time to describe Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led, large, led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So apparently, Paul's three years of preaching has really impacted the business. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name. He's not really concerned about the good name. He's losing concern that he's going to lose bucks, you know. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Is he really concerned about the goddess's divine majesty? No, of course not. You see, oftentimes what happens is when people are, are threatened economically, though they may focus on that initially, they know that that's not going to be sufficient motivation. They can't go out and tell the people, don't turn away, don't believe Paul, because we're going to suffer financially. You know, he's too smart for that. He says, don't believe Paul, because Artemis is going to suffer, and we wouldn't want that to happen, would we? You see, so people begin to, in order to, to maintain their status quo, they, they whip up... Uh, either a patriotic response or a religious response as justification. And that's exactly what he does here. Now, Demetrius is, as I said earlier, he's learned in his life that he'll be important, he'll be secure if he makes money. There are people in this world, people in the church, who their, their whole life revolves around making money. And they don't know why. They don't know why that's so important to them. It's so important because of their whole life has been lived apart from God, apart from learning to be dependent on Him. You say, is there something wrong with making money? No. But when money becomes the end of your life, when money becomes the purpose for your living, when you find yourself, you have to make that deal, you have to sell that product, you've got, you're in trouble. Because now... Your Artemis has become money. And it just isn't money. I mean, that's just an example of how we substitute things in our life to meet those deep needs. Remember, the need is to feel worthwhile, to feel important, to feel valuable. The Bible says that God loves us with a love that we can't even comprehend and that we can experience that love. But it's by faith. It's by faith. And, and I'm not going to step out and experience that love. I'm not going to be able to experience the love of my wife if I don't let go of 
something, some other person in my life. Isn't that true? You can't enter a new relationship till you've left another one. You can't embrace and enjoy all the goodness and the love from that relationship unless you've left this other one. There are lots and lots of people in this world who are striving after all kinds of elusive goals. They have goals in their life. The goals are there to meet these needs. They've defined in their life, I've got to have this to be happy. The Bible defines that as foolishness. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. I'm trying to teach, my wife and I are trying to teach our son the difference between foolishness and wisdom. And it's exciting because everything falls into one of those two categories. Either it's foolishness or it's wisdom. And what we're doing is, first thing, we're teaching about the words. We're teaching them how to pronounce and how to spell the words foolishness and words wisdom. And then we define the words for him. I said to him, Michael, this is foolishness. And he stands at attention, he listens, he's teaching him to give me eye contact, you see, and we talk. And I said, foolishness is from the devil. He says, oh, okay. And I said, foolishness is wanting to get your own way, that thinking you'll be happy if you can have your own way. That's foolishness. He says, oh. And I said, foolishness always, always leads to pain. He thinks for a minute and he says, hmm. Is that why you spanked me? I said, you're learning. You get a spanking, you get grounded, you don't get to go outside and play, you don't get to ride your bike when you're foolish. When you're foolish. Now see, the Bible says, in, in, in the 22nd proverb, the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. That means from way in the beginning. That's a sinful nature, foolishness. That's sin in the, in, in the flesh. We were born that way that it's tightly bound up. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, that it's driven out. Another strong term, driven out with a rod of discipline. That doesn't, rod doesn't mean just spanking. Discipline, order, structure, training, teaching, input. Very, very, very few of us have been raised with a true, accurate, loving understanding of who God is and what this book has to say. Isn't that true? Most of us have been manipulated. Most of us have been raised with guilt and fear. Most of us have been taught as well as experienced the reality of an aversion to God and what he has for us. Most of us, for, for the majority of our life, have seen God as a threat to us. Most of us, when we hear about God and we hear about Jesus, the first thing that's popped into our mind before we became Christians was, well, if I receive Jesus, that means I have to give up. Notice the language, I have to give up. The real description is, I get to give up. I get to be freed. Not that I have to be. But you see, that's the foolishness in us. We hold on to these things. We hold on to our immaturities. We hold on to, to sin. We hold on to foolishness. Because somehow these crazy things meet a need in our life. You know why, why, why young women become promiscuous? It's because they've never really been loved. With a, with a good holy love. And they become promiscuous because in their mind, they equate sex with love. 
And they don't really get any enjoyment out of the physical act. They just want to be held. They want to be loved. They want to feel secure. And so, and so they, they can't understand why they want to be right. They want to become a Christian. They want to do, live right for the Lord. They want to live pure, chaste lives. But they find themselves in these traps and they just, every time they fall. There's a deep need there that hungers to be filled. And they have wrongly defined how it can be filled. They bought into a lie, just like Demetrius has. Satan has blinded their eyes to the truth. That person needs to be enlightened and encouraged that Jesus will meet that need for love. And, and they need to begin to step out in faith and believe it. Sometimes the feelings go, no, it doesn't feel, feel. <laughs> But no matter what the feelings say, that we step out and we say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I feel alone. I'm hurting, but I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to run into promiscuity again. I'm going to wait on you. The people who are, who are threatened at every point. Now, I understand this. I, I, have, I have my insecurities, my inadequacies, just like the rest. Mine surface in different areas. You know, I... I I give the church to the Lord, then I take it back. Then I give the church back to the Lord. I say, Lord, it's your church. No, but I'll take it. And I go back and forth, you know. And I say, Lord, you grow your church. And as soon as I say that, then I take it back and I try to grow it. Why? I begin to understand that my sense of worth depends upon whether the church grows or not. Somehow it reflects on me. And somehow I can't have it reflect badly on me. I can't handle that. But you see, the issue for me at that point is saying, Lord, it doesn't matter where the church grows. You're, it's your church. You grow it. I'm going to be faithful to get up every morning to come here, do the things you've called me to do. You see, I'm not going to be a driven person anymore. I'm going to be faithful to do the things you've called me to do. The results are in your hands. The times when I'm feeling low and devastated and, and empty and discouraged and all those things. The temptation to resort to gimmicks and, and doing this thing and that thing and... Lord, it's your church. I'm not feeling too good right now. I'm feeling kind of scared. But I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to wait on you. You see, all of us have these kinds of things that we wrestle with, that we're in bondage to, that we're slaves to. And these are areas in our life that we can begin to open up and let the Lord come in and cleanse those closets, cleanse those bedrooms that have been locked for years. But you see... Cleaning can be painful, can't it? Then the issue becomes, do I want to deal with the pain? Do I want to deal with the growth? Do I want to let God clean out the remnants of Demetrius that, that remain in my life? Or am I going to go on living a lie? Am I going to be dependent on, on my need for prestige and power to meet my sense of, of value and, and purpose? Am I, gonna, am I gonna continue to depend upon making money so that I'm important, I'm a somebody? Or can I be a somebody in Christ and not worry about it and let the Lord choose to do whatever he wants through me? Where am I living? What's going on in my life? How am I like Demetrius? That when the Lord speaks to me, he wants to move in my life, that I resist. I said, no, it's too threatening. I can't let go of this thing. I've gotten so much solace from it for so long. You know, 
the pain of doing that can be so great sometimes, of letting go of these things and, and coming to grips with who we are. The pain can be so great that, that, that we don't want to face it. We'd rather anesthetize ourselves. When you're alone, you know, some people cannot stand being alone. They don't know what to do with themselves. They've got to go eat. They've got to turn on the TV. They've got to turn on the radio. They've got to call somebody. They've got to take a drink. They've got to shoot up some drugs. They've got to do something. They can't stand being alone with themselves. Because if they're alone with themselves for too long, they've got to come to grips with their inadequacies. That's too painful. But that's just what they need, is to come to grips with their inadequacies and say, Lord, I'm going to be here. I'm not going to run to the refrigerator. I'm not going to go take a drink. I'm not going to go do this. I'm going to go and I'm going to soak in your word. Speak to me. Speak to me. You can open this book at any place. And if your heart is there and you're saying, God, speak to me, and you're crying out like that, I don't care where you open it, he'll speak to you. One word will jump off that page and go, wow. You can read Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. And you can just go, wow. <laughs> Why? Because God is the God of the impossible. He's still the God of the miraculous. He's still the God of, of healing and grace and love. But we've got to let go. And when God approaches us, do we, do we perceive his approach as a threat to us personally? Or do we perceive his approach as a threat to those things in us that need to be removed? Where's our perception? It takes great courage. It's like getting baptized. Many of you have heard me for, for the last three years, every time a baptism comes up, and you're Christians, and many of you have heard me say, come and get baptized. In the back of your mind, there's a, yes, you need to get baptized. But in the front of your mind, says, there's some reason you can't put your finger on it why you won't come get baptized you keep holding off. And that reason is because somehow it means that you've got to be vulnerable and your internal person can't handle that. At some point, you've got to take a step of faith. You've got to screw up your courage and say, God, okay, here we go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to confess you as Lord in front of all these people. I'm going to get out of myself. Isn't that exciting? You see the kind of freedom and the kind of new life that God offers? If we would just open ourselves up to him and, and allow him to come in and do these works, not see him as a threat, not resist him. You've got to know that the flesh is automatically going to resist God. Automatically. But that there's a new born-again person in there who says, down, flesh. Down. We're going for it. We're going to get out there by faith. We're going to get out there by faith. And we're going to trust him. We're going to trust him. And again, even in the midst of, of intense personal pain, the loneliness, the agony, the depression, you go, oh, I'm not going to move. God, help me. And he will. You say, I've tried that. It doesn't work. It does too because you've not tried it. You made a half-hearted attempt at it. But you've not been committed. 
It's when you're committed that God pours his strength into you, right? And lots of you know it. It's when you make that commitment, when you just you say, that's it, Lord, it's you and me. Now God begins to lift you up, pours his spirit, fills you up. Exciting things. But Demetrius is going to whip everybody up because it's too big a threat to him. He doesn't see the obvious. He doesn't see all the lives of people being changed around him. He doesn't see people marching ahead. He's blinded to all that because of these needs in his life. He's been deceived into meeting through other means, not in a relationship with Christ. If he if you just look around, he'd, he'd say, well, you know, gosh, I see all Paul's preaching this Jesus and all these people are... are are falling after, and, they're, and they're, they're believing what Paul's preaching. But their lives are changing for the better. They're happier people. They're, to, they're more together people. They're, their lives are making sense. Gosh, maybe I should do that too. But he doesn't see that. It's a threat to him. I got an opportunity to lead a girl to the Lord some time ago who was a prostitute. And... Horrible, horrible situations in her life. She's involved in that lifestyle for years. And, and again, she got into it because there was a longing in her life just to be loved. One thing led to another, to another, to another. And, and through the whole process, she found herself immersed in that lifestyle. Because in her mind, she equated sex with love. Somehow, they were the same. That's not true. But she began to believe that, and she found herself immersed in this lifestyle, and and, and just a, a chance meeting, I got an opportunity to, to talk with her, to give her some good news, and I could see the wheels whirring in her head that, that what's she going to do to separate herself out from that life? What's she going to do for, for income? How's she going to support herself? Well, she said, I can go be a waitress. I can go do anything. But I said, the first thing you've got to do, leave all that stuff off, the first thing we do is trust the Lord. First thing we're going to do is we're going to say, God, come in and change me. And she said, would he really? I said, I guarantee it. And you could see written all over her longing to get out of that life, a longing for fulfillment, a longing for dignity in a real life. And so she says, all right, I'll pray. We prayed a short prayer of commitment. I said, do you mean it? She says, oh, yes. I said, all right. She says, what do I do now? I said, we wait. We wait. We trust the Lord and we wait. She says, I got to pay my rent. We wait. All right. It wasn't but a week that the Lord provided her with an incredible job that paid her more money than she, could, she just could ever think would be possible. It wasn't long after that the Lord brought a man into her life who loved her and took care of her. She came back, she said, should I tell him about my past? I said, it's a difficult thing to know. If it'll help the relationship, maybe. But only God can tell you that. I can't tell you that. As it turned out, she, she felt constrained to tell him, feeling sure that he would reject her, feeling sure that he would say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. But you see, because she was trusting the Lord, she was willing to step out and risk. The Lord met her at that point. And this man said, it doesn't matter. 
God has created you new. You're not the same person. Dynamite. You see, great risk of letting go of these things in their life. And all of us, great risk. Oh, if I let go, what's going to happen? Where's my security? Where's the meaning? Where's the purpose? It'll be found in God as you learn to wait on Him. And what does it mean to wait on Him? Waiting on the Lord is waiting in the tomb. It doesn't mean that you're just sitting there doing nothing. It means that you're running to this Word. You're beginning to soak in it. You're beginning to let Him speak to your heart, to your mind. That you bow on your knees and you say, Oh God, help. Teach me. That you even get down on your face on the floor, flat out, and say, Lord, I'm here prostrate before you. Raise me up. That you become involved in fellowship, that you be willing to, to open up and become vulnerable in the context of fellowship with other Christians. That you begin to share your life. You see, the focus ceases to be on you. Most of us, the problem is our thumb. Do you know that? For most of us, the problem is our thumb. You know where we go? We start sucking our thumb. We get off in the corner, we go, Mm. No, take the thumb out of our mouth, open the Bible, get on our knees, start reaching out to other people, and start getting in line, getting involved in ministering. Get the focus off ourselves. That's what it means to trust the Lord. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. For Him to do something miraculous in your life doesn't mean that you sit down and do nothing. It means you get involved in those four disciplines. In the Word in prayer, in fellowship, in serving. You say, I don't know what to do. Get started in the Word. I don't know where to read. Open the Bible. (laughs) Get started. I don't know how to pray. Father. Father. I don't know anybody. I'm afraid. I'll introduce you to somebody. So-and-so meets so-and-so. Now you know somebody. (laughs) I don't know where to serve. I'll give you a place to serve. You've got to get started. You've got to be committed. You've got to say, Lord, Lord, I want your will in my life. And you've got to mean it. Otherwise, you're going to keep running to all this stuff in your life that's led to futility and frustration and still that continual sense of emptiness, that there's something more. I'm I'm not there. Your Christianity is, is devoid of life and enthusiasm and excitement. It's when you let go of these things, like Demetrius didn't let go, and let God come in and fill them in your life. You step out there by faith and you learn to trust Him. Each one of us, one at a time, on our own, have to step out by faith and rest in that tomb and let Him raise us up according to His timetable. It's by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith. How? Is it by feeling? It's by faith. Is it by sight? It's by what? I believe you're there even though I don't feel it 
I believe you're there and you care about me even though I can't see you and touch you. It's by faith. And it's by faith we stand. It's by faith we stand. He stirs up all these people and there's a big tumult in the city. We're told in verse 32 that there was a great assembly. They rushed throughout the city and a great assembly in the in the, in the big theater there in Ephesus, which could hold anywhere from 20 to 50,000 people. Thousands of people. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Why? Because they don't know where they're going. Paul's a threat. Things have been stirred up against him, so they're going to hang Paul. They can't find him, so they get his two partners. But look what, he, look what Luke says. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. You know, you ever been a part of a mob? You know, you get there and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we doing? Why are we here? Are we a mob here? Does everybody know why we're here today? Some people don't. Some people truly don't understand why they're here. Some people are here to find a spouse. That's true. Did you know that? That's their primary reason for coming to church, is to find a husband or a wife. I had a girl come up to me the other day, say, Hope Chapel just is not it. I said, wait a minute, we have our faults, but tell me what's the matter. I said, no, we're not perfect. She says, I can't find a man. I said, praise God. I did. And she looked at me, and I said, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You need, you need to stand in correction. I need to rebuke you. The Bible says, Jesus says, seek me first and my righteousness, and all these other things that you're worried about are going to be added to you. <laughs> I love it. People come to church, why? Out of duty. Well, I've come to church all my life. You know, get up at 10 o'clock, come to church. It's like going to the bathroom almost sometimes. There are people here this morning that don't really know why they're here. It's just an exercise. That's it. It's a religious exercise. They've not opened their hearts to God. They've not opened their life to Jesus. They're not here to celebrate him. They're here to fulfill their own agenda. Are you here to fulfill your own agenda? Or are you here to celebrate him? Are you here to reaffirm your commitment? Are you here to say, Lord, jack me up again so I can get back out there and work for you? Are you here to, to let him cleanse the Demetrius out of you so that you can walk out filled more with Jesus? Most of them didn't even know why they were there. But you know what? They were shouting, verse 34, but they realized that this other guy, Alexander, was a Jew, and they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know what they're saying? Don't confuse me with the facts. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is whatever I'm doing. Great is whatever I'm seeking. 
but greater is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this world is full of wonders, full of exciting things. God has gifted many people, and, and, and we, we follow after all these things, and we seek after, we see, oh, it's the greatest movie. You know, great game. Whatever. But greater is Jesus. No matter how we are excited and enamored by the things of this life, greater is Jesus. He has to be greater. There can be no other thing or person in our life that is greater than him. He is greatest. The issue then becomes in our own life, do we with our life shout out, greater is whatever? Do we evidence with our own life that Jesus, you're fine, but I'm going to put my trust in this? And you measure that by your commitment. You measure that by your involvement in things of significance and value. Bible study, prayer, spiritual growth, fellowship, giving yourself away. That's how you measure those things. Otherwise, you become smaller and more inward, more and more frustrated. God ceases to have answers for you. Is it great as Artemis of the Ephesians? Or is it greater as Jesus of the universe, creator of it all? See, the choice is up to us. The gospel is, is a call for us to repent, for us to begin to recognize that we have deep human needs that only God can meet fully, and for us to turn to him. If you don't recognize it, if you don't see it in your life, if you don't understand it, ask him to show you. Go seek him out in prayer and say, God, acquaint me. Show me where I'm blinded. Show me these areas. Show me these things I've been trusting in, be it money or, or power or prestige or reason or or whatever. Show me these areas I've been trusting in that I can let go of them and invite you to come in and replace them in my life, that I can learn to truly depend on you for every area of my life. It's a challenge, isn't it? It sure is. But it's an exciting one. It's the only one worth living for. Is this life worth living? Only if Jesus is the goal. Guy came up to me the other day. He said, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. All I'm going through, it's not worth it. I said, you know, you're right. It's not worth it. If this is the only life we have, if, if this is all there is, it's not worth it. But there's more which makes it worth it. Let's pray.